0: Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul
1: sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. We are so glad to welcome Megan Chance today to our show. She's the author of a new book entitled Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice, that released last month. So congratulations, Megan. Yeah, congratulations. That's a really, really big deal.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's been... Uh... It's been a journey. And I'm sure, I mean, Katie knows she's published a book and she's in the process of publishing a book, right? When does that, when does your yeah. book come out? The one on abortion? January. January. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys know. Yeah,
1: it's it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big project to take yeah. on. And um, yeah, we're, we're so glad to get to talk to you. So we'll share a little bit about who you are. And then of course, people will get to know you as you, as you share with us about, about your book and the journey behind it. So Megan's a writer, speaker, and former missionary, which we're going to get into, um, who is passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith. Well, you're you're in good company here at Kindred's. Um, She's a prolific blogger, host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, which you all should go check out, and an avid traveler. She and her husband, Dustin, live in Northeast Georgia. So we wanted to give a quick note about content for today's episode. There will be uh, some discussions of sexual and gender-based violence, both in a global context and within white evangelical Christian church culture. So please know that going in. And if if that's not okay for you, that is completely fine. So we just wanted to give a quick content warning. But Megan, again, we're just so glad to have you. And welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome. (laughs)
2: I am so excited to be here. Um, Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, well, let's dive in, okay? Okay. So you talk in the book about your experience as a missionary, which um, I imagine is really intriguing to a (laughs) lot of folks, and uh, Ashley and I remember from our experiences growing up in white American church spaces that overseas mission work was often put on a pedestal Mm -hmm. or held up as this truly selfless pursuit, but it was also sold as as a life of adventure, which Mm Sounds noble and exciting and and maybe that sounds familiar to you too. So first of all, can you tell us where you went and what kind of mission work you were engaged in and and your mindset that you had entering into the mission space?
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, like the two of you, I grew up in a really conservative evangelical church. I was raised to believe that um, women could not Speak or teach or really have any position of power and must be submissive to the men in their life. Um, and so I loved Jesus. That sat wrong with me, but I loved Jesus and I wanted to serve Jesus well. And so um, growing up, when I ever heard stories about, like, I guess freedom for women, it was usually in a missions context. Mm. Like, I could see women mm. who were empowered to, like, the only time we had women speak was like a woman missionary would come and share about her experience, mm. and she didn't seem mm-hmm. to be under the rule of anyone. And so that was appealing to me. So I went to the school for journalism, um, worked for a newspaper right as they were dying and I hated it. And so I was like, okay, I will just do missions work. I feel like this is the most holy, godly thing I can do. Um, while I guess maintaining some sense of self and not having to, you know, be submissive to the men in my life. And so I went on this trip You know, being inspired by books like Kisses from Katie and all, you know, I feel like especially the time I grew up, um, missions were like, if you were going to be a holy good woman, a holy good person, you should do missions. And so that was my motivation. I think underneath all of that motivation, I was raised with this um, theology of total depravity. And Mm -hmm. I thought I was bad. I thought I was a bad person like deep down. And so I wanted to Mm -hmm. be a good person. And this was the way I knew, or the only way I knew I could be a good person, um, because I was constantly being told that what I did and who I was and everything about me wasn't enough. And I thought, well, maybe this is something I can do. And of course, there's so many problems that we can talk into. We can talk about like white saviorism, but my mindset was, I want to be good. And I feel like, I'm bad because that was the theology I grew up with. And also just a sense of freedom, um, being able to do something that um, women in my context weren't allowed to do for the most part.
0: A central theme of your book and something we grapple with a lot on the show is the reality of sexual exploitation and consumption of women and girls' bodies throughout time all over the world. Can you talk about what you witnessed on the mission field and how you connected that with your own experiences within and beyond the church?
2: Um, So I went and was very quickly awakened to the oppression of women. Almost from, actually from day one, um, we were encountering, actually we were in Ireland and the contact we had was very misogynistic and, you know, said that women should be seen and not heard and just went on this tirade about how women didn't know their place. Awesome. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just a very, um, because what had happened is he um, said that we could wear a head coverings to church if we wanted to and. Growing up, we had we had no idea what that meant, um, and so a lot of us didn't wear head coverings, and it was very upsetting to him, and he told us that, like, we were bringing shame upon ourselves, and um, it was really bad, and I, I think it wasn't, like, the first time I'd ever heard something like that. In fact, I grew up in a context where uh, what he was saying was more extreme, but I heard that I had, like, variations of it growing up, and it was the first time I looked around the room and realized that my whole life I had thought this was bullshit. And that other people in the room, women, also thought it was bullshit. And I think it was the first time I felt not alone um, and feeling like this was wrong, that this theology was wrong. Um, And then the next month I was – or I don't – it wasn't exactly the next month. A few months later I was in Kenya and women were coming forward and telling me that – I should say girls – They were like 15 or 16 were telling me that, you know, they were uh, fighting to get their education or the survivor of um, rape or violence um, and that a lot of them had experienced female genital mutilation or female genital cutting. Um, And I remember having heard about this concept when I was in college. Um, I didn't think I would ever... I guess I, a part of me felt like it wasn't still practiced, but as I'm sure both of you are aware, this is a practice that um, I think affects effect, it's affected millions of, of women and girls um, all over the world. And um, I was just shocked that this was still happening, but I was also noticing that hand in hand with this extreme procedure that removed... Um, some or all of the external genitalia, which was super damaging and harmful and made sex painful and, and caused a host of health issues, not to uh, mention emotional trauma. Um, and sometimes the girls would even bleed to death during this procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, but what came hand in hand with these, this practice was this idea that women um, needed to stay home. They needed to take care of the house. Yeah. They shouldn't get an education because their ultimate role was to stay home and serve the men in their life. And and so there are some elements that reminded me of my own upbringing. Obviously, what I was seeing was a lot more extreme than what I had grown up with. But I remember beginning to ask questions, how is this a tradition in this area and how did it get here and, and why is there... Um, for lack of... I don't even think it's for lack lack of a better word. Why is there so much misogyny here? Why um, are women and girls so frowned upon? And as I went on, I encountered uh, human trafficking. I uh, I, I read about a young girl I met who was being trafficked by the pimp who sold her mother, that her mother had been kidnapped or uh, deceived in in Nepal. We don't know the full story, but we know that there's a huge... uh, Trafficking between Nepal and India, and traffickers will go to impoverished villages in, in Nepal and say, "Hey, uh, give us your kid. We'll, we'll help them. We'll give them an education." And oftentimes, these children end up getting trafficked either into like brick kilns or into um, the sex trade. And so that was the story of this young girl, and she was her mother um, was the one that was trafficked, and her mother was sold to another brothel or pimp, and was now being raised by the man who sold her mother this was after months and months of seeing uh, violence against women. I feel like it was the breaking point for me. The fact that so many little girls and women live this way. I just, I was changed. And um, it, it wasn't till so I continued to do mission work specifically with women for the next five years. Like I worked for a missions organization. So while I was based stayside, I would also lead trips often. Um, and it was when I was having a conversation with, I was working with trafficked women in the Philippines, and there was this man who had came, uh, an American guy who had called us over to talk to us. To talk to us, and he was a man that, you know, purchased these women. And he asked us why we were there, and we told him that we were partnering with an organization that helped women. Get an education. If they wanted to go through college, there was like there was a they provided safe houses and um, money for dependents, which is oftentimes a huge barrier for women being able to leave. um, Is there's so many dependents that they're paying for and trying to provide for, and uh, you know helping them get a college education. And so we told him that, and he's like, "Oh, that's great." And we asked him why he was there, and he said, "Women here are raised right. They're submissive, and I get the respect that I deserve." And I remember as he just went on this really long monologue about how men needed respect and women didn't know their place. And it was after like five years of hearing similar stories that it just hit me that he sounded like my pastors. And I was um, about to get married and people were recommending the book, Love and Respect to me. And this is exactly what it said, that, that men needed respect without conditions. And it was just this huge moment of realization and uh, I, I, quit. I quit my job because I realized that the church uh, that I had grown up with, the, ch- the church was being complicit in, in the harm against women, and I was being complicit by adhering to these gender norms. And so it led me to quit my job and eventually start the Faith and Feminism podcast and write this book.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing your story with us. You've used the word complicity a few times, and I wonder if you can expand on what you mean when you say that white Christian churches are complicit both in harm against women around the world as well as complicit in white supremacy through things like white saviorism.
2: Yeah, and I I mean, I wish this is, I mean, I think it's becoming a bigger conversation, um, but I wish that there was, um, I wish I had known better. Basically, and yeah. um, so, um, 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 so if we look at the history of missions, it is a at best complicated history at best. So if we look at the history of missions, we there was something called these um, these edicts by these papal bulls back in I think the 15th century where um, Christian monarchs quote-unquote christian monarchs or rulers could go and take over land and if it wasn't claimed by a christian monarch they could kill or convert everyone on that land and they did this in the name of christ because this land is not christian and so it needs to be christian and so that's a way that they did it with violence and then if we look even later here in the united states um Uh, There was um, land, uh, obviously the Native Americans were here first, um, indigenous peoples, and um, there was this whole thought of Manifest Destiny that this, the whole, all of America or the, the United States Turtle Island needed to be claimed for Christian, Christianity. And so there was a Supreme Court ruling when white folks were taking land from Native Americans and this was in 1823. I think it's called McIntosh, where they justified in the Supreme Court taking land from Native Americans because they weren't Christian, and so essentially that you can steal land because they're not Christian and they need be they need to be saved, and this land should be claimed for Christians. And so, um, I don't think that's talked about in the church. In fact, no, I think there's a it's lot definitely of things.
0: Not, not enough. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there is a lot of things about America's history and about the church's com- complicity in harming and exploiting people with the, in conjunction with the church uh, that we don't talk about. And I'm sure I'm knowing Katie. I know you. You all have covered this. You talk about like um, white um, white feminism and the in the ways you know that white supremacy is so present. In, In our society and in our churches. And so going into this, I wish there was an education that I had been given about missions. I wish that, um, you know, in preparation for my trip, basically you went to this this thing called a training camp and they basically uh, taught you how to pray and then did some really actually um, racist or culturally insensitive uh, kind of like drama enactments of how to prepare you for traveling around the world Mm. Um, and yeah, actually just really bad. Like when I look back at like how I was trained to be a missionary, I was trained to be a white savior and also to not um to not ask questions to not understand uh cause and effect and then also to be really insensitive to other people's cultures if they look different than me and it's so interesting cuz even if you look at the notion of, of of missions it's kind of like i'm here to save you and teach you about jesus cuz you need jesus and there's this whole layer of supremacy to it christian supremacy mm-hmm. Um, and even if you look at missions, oftentimes they would, there, there's phrases like with the church if we you know, there was, um, recently they d- discovered the remains of 215, um, indigenous children
0: yeah, in Canada. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that was run by a church and their whole motto is like, kill the, um, kill the Indian, save the man. And this is, this mm. is Christian complicity. And so when I'm talking about the history of missions, it's not good. Yeah, a lot of it is is very bad. And I had no idea going into it. And, um, and I wish I did. And um, because I think I would have perpetuated less harm. Yeah, um, I probably I don't I probably wouldn't have gone had I known this, I wouldn't. But as it was, I wasn't trained on this. I was kind of saddled up with, you know, God doesn't Call the equipped, he equips the called, right? So yeah. even this idea. Heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've heard this, that um, it doesn't matter if you don't have expertise.
1: God just go.
2: with you. Yeah, yep. just go. And we're thrown. Here I am, Lord. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're thrown into situations where we're actually causing a lot of harm. And there's this other story that we hear. I forgot her name. It was all over the news for a while, um, or at least the news I follow, about this young um, American missionary who started this home for malnourished children and then was not trained at all medically, and and oh, yes. pretended pretended to be now. a
0: doctor. Yes, yeah, a, a white woman pretending to be a, a white doctor woman pretending to be no a doctor.
2: Training. Yeah, and hundreds of kids died under her care. Yeah, and so all of this to say, like we hear these horror stories, and I think we like to separate ourselves from them. Like I would never do that, but literally, I was taught. God doesn't call the equipped, he, he equips the called. And if I can't see myself in that woman's story or see that at least how she like this is not to absolve her behavior. It was terrible. but But to know that this is part of a system that tells that tells white folks that they are better because they're white and they are equipped to do things they're not equipped to do because of the color of their skin. And so I had this huge white savior mentality um, that was actually called out. I read about it in the book, but it was called out quite early by this man who um, I was trying to partner with with microfinance. Of course, I was in this this um, area where women were telling me that they were being um, beaten and abused by the men in their life. And I thought from reading Half the Sky that maybe if microfinance, if we could Level the playing field. It suggested that's one of the ways that you can decrease violence is by giving women more power. And I thought, well, maybe microfinance. But I didn't ask any other questions beyond that. I was there for three weeks and thought, you know, I I I can fix the problem. And I hadn't asked any questions. These women have been dealing with violence their whole, you know, for however long. And I thought I could fix it. And I thought, I have the answers. And so um, I, I got in contact with this guy, and he just called out my white saverism so hard. He's like, who are you to say these women aren't educated? Yeah. Could you survive during a doubt? Could you farm? Could you take care of all of these children? Do you know how to repair, like, homes and all this stuff? And, and I just felt the truth of his words that I had kind of bought into this lie that I was there to save people and that I was there to – to, to fix their problems without realizing, uh, number one, that I was not equipped to fix their problems, but number two, that a lot of their problems, if you look at these nations, a lot of the problems are actually at least in some part due to American interference. And so there was complicity there. So, um, you know, if we, we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, um, It it makes sense that Africa as a continent was destabilized when a large proportion of their population was stolen and raped and brought to the United States to build our economy. Right, And so I think what I started to learn slowly with this white saviorism, and I think this is also a biblical mandate, we see this through Isaiah and Amos, It says to wash your dirty hands and be clean. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your prayers. I don't want your songs. I want you to look at your bloody hands and be clean. And what I saw is that I was, I had bloody hands because I was being complicit in the, the principal, principalities and powers of both patriarchy and white supremacy. And I mean, if we're going even further, this, um, you know, violence of uh, towards queer people right this was all things that i was raised with in the conservative evangelical church that i was taught was good and holy
0: so those are really some interesting connections that you're drawing mm-hmm. and i think that that is something that we try to do on our show a lot mm-hmm. is to try to help people make these connections between the things that were taught in our church spaces that feel really mundane you know that girls shouldn't show too much cleavage mm-hmm. and that we should um right. you know but that's what I love what you're getting at is that it's part of this really big complicated mm-hmm. insidious oppressive system that affects mm-hmm. everyone to various degrees and we're mm-hmm. largely we're often because of our whiteness because of our status as Americans we're protected from a lot of the worst of it and Mm-hmm. We, we don't see a lot of the worst of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if you could um, speak to maybe what are some things that you wish the church would do differently around these conversations? Or maybe what are some ways yeah. that you've seen a church community get it right?
2: Mm, that's a really good question. I think it's interesting. So I was um, on my podcast, I was talking to Cole Arthur Riley, and she's uh, the founder. Um, she's in Oh, Black Liturgist. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We love her work. Yeah. So good. So powerful. And I was talking to her about this and she thinks there's, and I agree with her. There's such an element of self-delusion that we have in the white evangelical church that we think we're good. We think we're doing everything right. But if you look at our history, like so much of that is, is based in like I said, a messy history. And like, mm-hmm. so, like, even not talking about missions here, if we're talking about, like, for example, slavery or Jim Crow or, or um, a segregation, all of this was supported by supposed Christians um, in the name of God. Uh, and if we're talking about even, I mean, Phyllis Schlafly, like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure um, people know here, against women's rights, like, all of these... Movements that have come against minorities or people who haven't held power have often been from the church, often preventing people from trying to gain equal status. And of course, I'm, you know, I follow Jesus. I don't believe, I don't believe that's Jesus at all, but people have used Jesus's name to protect power and to Mm -hmm. protect their Authority and so, like, um, there's there's so many systems that I think you know. And in, in the white evangelical church, we're taught to see everything on um, an individual level, individual mm-hmm. sin, right? So I was mm-hmm. raised believing if something happened badly, it was either due to that person's sin, individual sin, individual shortcoming. If I did something badly, that was my fault, um, or if something happened to me, that was my fault. And so, to give an example of this, um, the first time I went on a mission trip, so I was. You know, indoctrinated young, I was thirteen years old. Um, and uh, I was wearing a T shirt that when I rose my arms above my head, like a sliver of my stomach would show, like a very small sliver, and my youth pastor pulled me aside and told me that I was shameful and that I would make men lust and that I needed to change my shirt or bad things. Exactly. <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> like this- yeah it's just wild I'm 13 years old so I like this is not even on my like I'm just learning how to use deodorant I'm not right I'm not trying to seduce anyone I don't even know what that is you know and um yeah so that happened I remember feeling enormous shame Mm. like how could you think that and so I remember wearing nothing but baggy clothing for The next week, like nothing but things that just covered every inch of my body and and, and baggy clothes to hide it. And it didn't stop me from from a stranger assaulting me and grabbing my breast when I was 13 after I had finished petting a stray dog. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought it was my fault. This is what I was Mm -hmm. warned about. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. That my body would make men do bad things, and now I had become, with all these teachings of purity culture, like, we grew up hearing that if anything happened to us, we're damaged goods, and so Mm -hmm. I thought in that moment that, you know, few seconds of this stranger doing this to me that I had become damaged goods and that it was my fault. That was literally what I was taught. I was taught that Mm -hmm. my body was dangerous and would make men do bad things, and if something bad happened to me, it's because... I didn't cover myself or I was too tempting or something was wrong with me. And so I didn't tell anyone for a decade um, because this was my fault and this was my shame and I didn't want anyone to know about it. Um, And I think, I mean, that's one of the many reasons I think survivors don't speak up. Um, It was not the only time something like that happened to me. It was actually one of many times that something like that happened to me. Um, But I think what I noticed or what I began to see And seeing and hearing other women's stories that my story wasn't just my story, that my story was happening again and again and again and again. And if I asked the question, even to my close friends, I would get a similar story. So this is not an individual feeling on the woman's part for not covering up. This is part of a system of patriarchy that tells women that they're less than men. And um, something I say a lot is I feel like purity culture tried to stop the object, maybe in their best intentions, tried to stop the objectification of adult women by objectifying little girls. Because essentially that's all it did, was tell little girls that they were objects to be um, used or to be protected um, and that we would become old, dirty objects. You know, licked Oreos, licked lollipops. Mm -hmm. Chewed up bubblegum. chewed up always things likened to consume literally girls are taught that they are objects to be consumed and to be pure the only person that should consume us is the man who we marry one day and that would be the person to consume us so there's just so many issues there um but i like i said it was it was realizing that all of these lessons that I was told to protect myself and whatever, they didn't help me. yeah, they they didn't save me. And there were so many women where this was happening to them as well. And so we have to ask the question when we see a story repeated, Over and over again, not what happened in this individual setting, but what is part of our world or our society that is causing this to happen so often? Um, What gender scripts have we been given? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that we've been talking a lot about, we talked about this with author Sue monk Kidd. We talked about it with um, our last guest, Ashley Easter, about reclaiming our own divine voice within ourselves. Because what you're talking about is we're taught not to trust what we feel, what we know to be true, um, within ourselves, right? You knew when you lifted your arm up and there was part of your stomach showing that you had not done anything wrong, right? Right. Like you knew, you knew yourself, but we're, Mm -hmm. we're, we're taught the lie that don't trust what you feel. And so that's been a big part of our conversations about embodiment and, and about intuition. That's what we talked about with Ashley Easter. So that inner voice that you had that, that guided you out of the, the work that you were doing overseas and at home, you know, how did you start tuning into that inner voice? Like how did you know what was true and not the things that you had been taught and kind of what path did that lead you on?
2: Yeah. Um, that's a really great question. And I think that's so valid. We're so often to trust or told, um, as women, not to trust our intuition, but I think it's also a message that the church receives as a whole. Like your body is sinful. Don't trust your body. The heart, mm-hmm. the heart mm-hmm. is deceitful above all things. We're told to spiritually bypass our emotions. Um, mm-hmm. if you're feeling grief or, or rage or anything that's not, uh, you know, a quote unquote happy emotion, we're told just focus on God and it will get better. And so I think. This has created a lot of problems. One, I think it has created a congregation that's really out of touch with their bodies and their intuition. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes them really easy to manipulate. Because if you've been told your whole life that you can't trust your intuition, I can remember my intuition from a young age or conscience, whatever you want to call it, knowing that what I was being taught in church was wrong. Like, I knew that women weren't mm. less. I knew this This felt wrong. This felt icky. But because I hadn't been exposed to anything else and I was told if I did speak up, then I would no longer belong. And there's also this huge need to feel like we belong that I didn't speak up for a really long time. And it wasn't until, um, obviously, that I had seen and worked with so many women who had uh, been the survivors of such extreme violence that, of course, I was, you know, on their team and on their side and, and starting to see these These um, powers that that came into play and what really broke me from like, who cares what people think of me, I'm done, was when Trump was elected.
0: (laughs) Mm hmm. I think that was a catalyst for a lot of us. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) It It was like... finally
0: being like, I can't can't be silent anymore. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so when Trump was elected, they knew how much I cared for women. They knew I was a survivor of sexual assault. And they knew that he bragged Mm -hmm. about sexual assault. He literally Mm -hmm. bragged about violating women's consent and touching them. And he could do it because he could get away from it or away with it. And I remember when I've had my body grabbed and the terror and the fear and the trauma that it is to to be Mm -hmm. touched without your consent and for people to be like, "Mm, you know, he's, he's the best choice we have. And, uh, but but like, not only that, but it was just like, nothing about him was redeeming. His policies were like anti-immigrant. His whole, his whole platform was building the wall, which I felt like as Christians, and I worked at a Christian missions organization. Do you not understand that your whole, this whole premise is for us to serve, you know, others, to serve the least of these, to you know, yet you are denying them. You're calling them criminals and gangsters and thugs and rapists and then saying, we don't actually want them here, but you'll go and travel to them? Because, like, what? Right. Yeah. Like, I just... I was done, and I think um, I was I was really upset, and I went to go trust talk to this man that I really trusted, and he said, "Megan, this is God's will, and you'll understand that one day." Oh. And that's when I was like, uh,
1: "How paternalistic?" Oh, yeah, please.
2: I'm like, "I'm done. I'm yeah. done. I I'm, I'm I." It took me six months more after that to co- uh, quit my job, and there were several factors that like led up to the, those decisions, so it wasn't just a one off thing. But I think. When I knew that I could trust my intuition over the voices that were leading or guiding me, um, was when was when they clearly showed that they didn't have a moral compass by electing Trump. Mm. I was like, I don't trust yeah. your morality yeah. anymore. I don't yeah. trust it, and okay. so that I think that's that was the thing that pushed me over the edge. So yeah
1: (laughs) fair enough
0: yeah yeah (laughs) I think a lot of our listeners can probably relate to that as well so before we get to our little our little bonus segment at the end I want to ask where can people find you how do they Mm -hmm. access your book is there anything else you want our listeners to know
2: uh yeah so you can find me on at my name Megan Johns um it's a it's a tough one to spell Um, We'll put it in show notes. Yep. It'll be be in the show notes. Yeah.
0: And we'll make an Instagram post as well.
2: Yeah. Um, so you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter as much. I'm trying to use Twitter because I realize like I go there because there's such good content, but I'm not as active participant in there. Yeah. I kind of like go and see what's there. Um, but yeah. And then my book is called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. And man, we just barely even skimmed the surface of the things I talk about. My hope is that when you read the book that you see yourself in this story, I think a lot of us have um especially if you grew up in the in the conservative church I think you'll you'll resonate with a lot of my story and if you don't resonate with it that's totally fine But I think you will I've gotten so many messages and the thing is like I feel like I'm living like this story you change the details this is my story um Mm. that's great And so yeah so I've gotten a lot of feedback about that and so my hope is that people can feel seen and then also be challenged to confront uh the harmful systems at play in our societies, and um, because ultimately I think that's our call from God, um, is to uh, to see principalities and powers and to confront those because our battle isn't against flesh and blood. And so um, I think there's a lot of harmful powers and principalities within our in our faith spaces, and I think they need to go. And so we need to be part of removing them.
0: I love so. that. We concur. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So we have a treat for this episode. We are going to share what we're reading and listening to. If you are new to the show, we used to have a segment every episode where we talked about media that we were into, but we let it go during COVID when Katie and I needed a bit of breathing room to record without the pressure of always having a new book or piece of content to share but we thought for today it might be fun because it's been a while and we know a lot of you do find your new content from us and Megan we'd love to invite you to share something that you um, have read or watched or listened to it could be fun it could be serious anything you want Um, and Katie we'll start with you
1: yes I'm excited I have a fun one this time you might have seen this because it's a very popular book club book right now it's called The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner and I know you're not supposed to judge books based on the cover, but it is a gorgeous cover. Ooh, I like It looks I really like that. nice on your bookshelves. Yeah. No, I was like, every time I brought it with me to the pool, I was like, this is a gorgeous book and it's a perfect, you know, beach read or just summer, like lazy afternoon reading. So if you have travel plans or if you're just staying home, definitely consider picking it up. It's a story told by, by two women and a girl in two time periods. So if you like stories told in multiple narratives, it's great for that. It's about a woman in England, um... I think it's 1791 is the year, who creates these discrete poisons for women to kill their unfaithful partners. <laughs> and another woman 200 years later, who's trying to piece together this lost story that she finds a clue to when she's there. And it's it's a quick page turner. It is so much fun. It's got like a little magic in there, um, women's empowerment and women's stories. So Definitely pick it up. It's really fun. And that's The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. So what about you, Ashley? What have you got? I love it.
0: I'm going to put that on my library list. So it's
1: really good.
0: uh, Our (laughs) listeners will remember how sad I was last year when our library closed for a very long time Mm. due to COVID. But it's finally open. I'm back in my library routine. It is amazing. And I don't know if I've talked about it much on this show, but I'm a big sci-fi fantasy nerd. And last summer, I got turned on to the author N.K. Jemisin. She's a fantasy writer who lives in Brooklyn, New York. She's won multiple Hugo Awards. She's a MacArthur Genius Grant uh, fellow, I think is what they call it. And the stories and the worlds that she creates are so expansive and compelling and complex. And last summer, I read The City We Became. I might have talked about it on an episode. I can't remember. I don't think so. No? Okay. Well, it's a, it's really good. And I just finished her Inheritance Trilogy, which starts with a book called The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. And because it's fantasy, it's a bit hard to summarize the plot. Basically, it's an epic that spans centuries, and it's all about the struggle between gods and mortals. And I highly recommend for people that love the fantasy genre. And I'm very excited to dive into her um, trilogy called The Broken Earth which um, has just been optioned into a movie and she's been asked to write all the screen, like adapt all the books for screenplay. So I'm super excited to read those books and see those movies when they eventually come out.
1: I just want to say, how long have we been friends? And I did not know that you like sci-fi or fantasy until now. (laughs) I don't know. It's not something I probably... You've been keeping that for me. Yeah, I don't know if I talk about it a lot, but what I love is
0: the tossing out all the rules of the universe as we know them and letting our imagination just, just run wild and you can create mm-hmm. in your mind the world you would love to see you know and yes. Katie and I talk a lot about our our feelings of how limiting <laughs> our our worldview is and the constraints we put on ourselves as people Megan um, and so that okay. I think sci-fi fantasy is a great outlet for that so alright Megan what have you got?
2: Um, I have, uh, the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. Have either of you read that? I
0: haven't read it yet. No, I haven't.
2: Okay. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I have been turning everyone around me, um, onto this book. I'm like, you need to read it. And so what Cast Does by Isabel Wilkerson, she also wrote another book called The Warmth of Other Suns, which kind of talks about, mm-hmm. uh, the migration movement, um, uh, kind of during the Jim Crow era from the South to uh, the North or to the, to the West, um, which was a really good book. It was quite lengthy, um, but I read um, cast by her and I feel like everything that didn't make sense about America <laughs> started to make sense again. Mm. Um, and so what she does is she compares, um, she she does a lot of research into the caste system in India and talks about how the United States is a cash system. Um, and it made so much sense. So one of the things I loved that she talked about, basically I loved the whole thing, but one of the things I loved, loved, loved is she compared, um, a why, uh, so you, you have the white working class and the black working class, and you would think, um, the, the, the policies that would benefit the white working class would also benefit the black, the black working class and vice versa. But oftentimes you will see white um, working class folks vote against their own interests. So perhaps um, against health care, against these other things um, that, that would benefit them and. Uh, other working class communities And I never understood that um, I didn't understand Specifically those struggling with Poverty in rural areas Voting um, for candidates That did not um, Want to help them or care about them mm-hmm. um, But she Explains um, how The caste system works and how um, It's possible that these People are holding on to their whiteness Because she goes into um, How Traditional or like historically in the United States, if you were white, that put you above everyone else, and it didn't matter like your education level or your monetary level. Like if you were white, that just like put you on the top. And so for people who feel like they have nothing else, they don't have all of these other accolades. The last thing that they can hold on to is their whiteness. Mm. And so they're going to identify more with their race and their caste than they are with the things um, that will actually bring them help. And so that is just one thing that I felt Oh, oh, now I finally understand because I didn't get it for so long. And so there's so much that she talks about in the book, but it's so good. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it it's, it's, it's a must read. And it's, it, I feel like because usually like nonfiction can or sometimes it can get really um, like weighed down. But because you're learning so much and it's stuff that feels so relevant today, you really just want to keep reading it. So that would be my recommendation.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. And yeah. thanks for being on the show. Yeah. We're yeah. so grateful to have had this time to talk with you. And um, thank you for your vulnerability and talking about these things that are, are really difficult on many mm-hmm. levels and kind of owning up to your participation in these systems and what you're doing now yeah. to, to disrupt them. So thank you so much for writing this book. And we, we want our folks to check it out. So that's Women Rising. Go get a copy today. Yep. 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 All right. So that's
0: it for this episode. And next time Katie and I will be back talking about anti-Semitism and white supremacy. Katie, I'll talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at
1: kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you.